0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd the host of InTrust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
3: in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, President Biden in Poland at the center of Ukraine's refugee crisis as Russia's military focuses on taking full control of the Donbass region but falters in Kiev. We'll look at the continuing fallout from the war from cyberspace to outer space. Plus Apple doling out an additional unusual bonus to key engineers, some upwards of $200,000. How to keep staff loyal as the post pandemic war for talent ramps up. We'll have more on that Bloomberg scoop. And Instacart also trying to lure new employees by taking an unexpectedly lower valuation, slashing its own valuation by almost 40% from 39 dollars to $24 billion. This is public market volatility. Continues. We'll discuss another Bloomberg scoop. All of that in a moment, but first let's get a look at the markets, tech stocks ending the week down. are at Ludlow here now with the latest, and it's not all bad news, right? No, Ed?
0: no, okay, look, we're a little lower, flat on a Friday, but we did see a late comeback from the ASDAQ 100, very tech-heavy index, of course. That's as oil trim games. You see WTI, West Texas Intermediate above $110 a barrel higher. Well, $113 a barrel, and the U.S. 10-year yield at 2.47%, near 2.5%. But coming into my Bloomberg terminal, look, we have some sustained momentum in tech stocks. The Nasdaq 100 having its first back-to-back weekly gain since the beginning of February. That, despite the backdrop of higher yields, of course, higher yields has impacted tech stocks with higher multiples. There's concern, of course, that it discounts the present value of future profits. Elsewhere, big tech names on the move, of course, this. Friday, looking at Meta, parent company of Facebook. It looks like the US and EU has reached a deal on a cord over data movement, the flow of data between the two continents. Facebook was a company that expressed concern there. Okta continues to be lower after that hike and Spotify ending its ad. Platform, ad-backed platform, free-to-play platform in Russia as well, Emily.
3: All right, Ed, thanks for that update. I want to move now to our top story. Talks between Russia and Ukraine are making no progress, according to a top aide to the Ukrainian president. But President Biden did make progress with EU leaders on a plan to wean Europe off Russian oil and tighten sanctions. The president also visiting troops near Poland's Ukrainian border as the war enters its second month. Joining us now, Bloomberg's Aggie Council from the ground In Poland, Aggie, you have been near the Polish border since almost the beginning of the war. Talk to us about how the refugee crisis you're seeing is evolving.
4: Yes, so when I first came here several weeks ago now, um, the waiting times for people to try and cross the border was up to 60 hours which in a polish and Ukrainian winter can be a real risk to people's lives and that was a real concern for the border guards and for the authorities on both sides of the border now we're seeing that that process of getting people over the border has been streamlined and it's also coupled with the fact that there are actually fewer people crossing the border now than were a couple of weeks ago when I speak to volunteers on the ground here a lot of them think that quite a lot of the people who've already crossed the border are those who are already going to do so and then the ones who remain in the ukraine are choosing to do so to be closer to their families now president
3: biden's visit to the polish border is any of this changing how he feels how the u.s will respond to russia
4: well to be honest, there is an immediate effect of Biden's visit in the fact that the day before he arrived here in Jezhov in Poland, he and anna- the White House announced that the USA would be taking in a hundred thousand of the Ukrainian refugees. Of course that pales in comparison to the two million that Poland has has taken in. However, that is a significant step on the part of the United States. And him coming here is also a signal to Poland that They're acknowledging the humanitarian relief that Poland is doing here. And also Poland has been pushing for the EU to give them greater aid when it comes to financially supporting them throughout this refugee crisis.
3: What's next for the president? Where is he off to?
4: He's heading to Warsaw after this, so he's going to meet um, with more uh, people in Warsaw. Today he already met with the 82nd Airborne here in Dzerzhov. Um, and now he's going on to Warsaw, the capital of Poland, in order to have further meetings. And so a key factor of this, uh, this meet, these meetings that he's having here in Poland is not just the humanitarian angle, but also the security angle. President uh, Duda, the Polish president, said in a his press conference today with President Biden that he he saw that his country was essentially the front line of the current uh, concerns that the NATO alliance have when it comes to Russia's aggression against Ukraine.
3: All right. Bloomberg's Aggie Cantrell for us with an update from Poland. Thank you, Aggie, for your reporting there from the ground. Meantime, cybersecurity defenses around the globe remain boosted as the war on Ukraine persists. Joining us now, Tony Anscombe, Chief Cyber Threat Officer of ESET, the group that detected the latest round of cyber attacks targeting various Ukrainian organizations. And talk to us about this latest salvo, Tony. What is significance about the tactics you're seeing from the Russians?
2: Well firstly these the cyber attacks were data wipers. So I mean we're all very familiar with things like ransomware that encrypts data and you can get it back if you pay pay the cyber criminal. These are just malicious pieces of code that actually do exactly what they say on the tin. They wipe the data so it can no longer be accessed or or recovered in any way. So it's very very malicious. And what is interesting about these particular variants is there was intent here because they, they were compiled, uh, some of them back in the end of last year, and they've been sitting on systems and we think they've been there for some time prior to actually being implemented. We don't know how they got there, but we certainly know they've been there for some time and then unleashed to coincide uh, with Russia's attack on the Ukraine. Now, you know, we can't attribute where these came from or who's who who wrote these pieces of code um but yes they're they're causing uh causing damage
3: you've detected a couple of other attacks in recent weeks but there is this lingering question of why we're not seeing more and more devastating cyber attacks from russia why is that
2: well i have my own opinion here emily It, it could well be that um you know, firstly, it's very hard to attribute a cyber attack if somebody launches a cyber attack actually turning around and saying it came from this person or this this group is very difficult and complex. So if all nation states have the ability to have a cyber attack on each other, it could actually be that we're sitting here Looking at the new digital deterrent, in the same way we think of a nuclear deterrent, everybody has one, and it hopefully stops everybody using it. Maybe that's the case where we're, we're sitting with a digital deterrent, that each side knows that they both have access to tools that could do untold damage in, both, in societies all over the world. And maybe we're seeing uh, that, that play out now.
5: How
3: strong do you think cyber defenses are? Of course, we've been hearing these warnings from the Biden administration that companies need to buckle up, boost all of their defenses. Is it going to work?
2: Well, hopefully. I mean, let's be clear, over the last several years, we've seen so many cyber attacks and so much infrastructure and finance and education you know, get attacked by ransomware all for monetization purposes so a lot of organizations are already very well down the path of having the right pieces in place to keep themselves protected the, you know, this is just another bump on yeah you know, for cybersecurity teams to turn and say right you know we need to do a little bit more uh, but i think this is not you know, we're not starting from scratch here, and that's my point. One thing that concerns me, though, is you know, if you look at the number of, for example, water uh, water utility companies here in the US, there's 50,000 of them, and many of them are very, very small and very regional. And I think they probably lack a lot of the skills and resources needed to actually create that cyber-secure environment. I'm, I mean, I'm not far from you down in Half Moon Bay, and oh. I, I'm certainly... The one here in Half Moon Bay is very small and very rural. All
3: right. Well, let's hope that uh, all of these companies, all of these different organizations, these utilities, um, have what they need when it comes to protecting themselves. Uh, Tony Anscom of ESET, thank you for giving us an update on cyberspace. Coming up, grocery delivery giant Instacart slashing its valuation by almost 40%, but saying it's a good thing, for employees at least. We'll discuss why next. This is Bloomberg.
6: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention
1: right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film,
3: Apple is paying a small number of engineers another round of special stock bonuses. This is part of an unusual push to retain key talent, according to people with knowledge of the matter. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Mark Gurman on yet another scoop. So, Mark, look, Apple pays out bonuses all the time, but this one seems more unusual. Why are they doing this?
7: Yeah, so this is a bonus. This is the second time they're doing this. This is restricted stock units, so these vest over four years. Right now, obviously, inflation is very high. Bay Area high uh, housing prices are increasing per usual. Uh, you're seeing a lot of poaching being done from Amazon, Microsoft, and particularly Meta slash Facebook of Apple employees to help build their metaverse. They're also having their stringent return-to-work policy kicking into place over the next several weeks. So Apple wants to do everything it can to really retain that key talent. So they're giving these massive bonuses to people working in their self-driving car division, software engineering, and hardware engineering. And those four-year vesting periods are designed to keep those people in place uh, for the next little while.
3: Now, Apple is you know, certainly one of those places that has always been a magnet for top talent, and they've managed to keep people for... Years, despite all of this competition, is Apple facing, you know, a bigger challenge um, with uh, other big tech companies at this moment because of the post-pandemic environment?
7: I think every tech company is facing the same issue, right? You have people leaving Google, you have people leaving Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, you have people leaving all of these companies, right? So they're all competing with different benefits to keep their top talent. Uh, Interestingly, Apple is the place that you go to maybe if you're a veteran in your field, right? If you're the type of person who wants to work on a product that you know is going to be used by hundreds of millions or billions of people. That's not necessarily the same perk that you get by working at maybe Meta or Google or Facebook if we're talking about hardware or one unified service. So it is pretty enticing for certain people to work at Apple. Now, Apple doesn't always pay as much as competing companies, right? I know Meta is paying more uh, than Apple for a number of very similar positions if you compare it apples to apples, right? Meta also has their, you know, remote work policy in place. So you could work at Meta, you can work remotely for as long as you want, whereas Apple, for three days per week, you're expected in the office. Likewise with Google, you'd be expected in the office three days per week. So everyone is competing for top talent in order to keep churning out these products.
3: All right. Well, we'll see how that shakes out apples to apples, as you say. Mark Gurman, as always, thank you. Meantime, grocery delivery upstart Instacart has slashed its valuation by almost 40% to reflect public market declines across the tech industry. The company raised money at a $39 billion valuation last year. The new valuation, $24 billion. But the company believes the new number will give new employees more upside. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Jackie Davalos now for more details on this, another Bloomberg scoop. So, Jackie, Instacart is voluntarily lowering its valuation. This is fairly unprecedented. But, of course, if you look at companies like DoorDash, where we've seen massive declines, Shopify, where we see massive declines, they say this just makes sense. Give us some more context
8: on why they're doing this. You put it perfectly. This is not that unusual for perhaps a public company that is already you know, has employees eyes on their share price. What Instacart is doing is behaving more like a public company. There's been so much speculation that they could potentially IPO this year. But when you look at what's going on in the public markets, they took a step back and said that there is a bigger issue at play here outside of going public, which is the, t- the war for tech talent exists what's going on in other companies uh, around Silicon Valley and so what's happening here now is that they're going to prioritize this these recruitment efforts new hires entice them in by giving them shares at a lower price and then unlocking that upside as the company continues to grow. Now, as I understand it, Instacart CEO Fiji Simo
3: explained some of their reasoning at an all-hands meeting at the company today. Instacart also released this statement to us, saying, We're confident in the strength of our business, but we're not immune to the market turbulence that has impacted leading technology companies, both public and private. We can't control the market, but we can control how we respond. How do you think employees, Jackie, are going to respond to this. I mean, it is one thing if you come into a company at a $39 billion valuation, and it's a different thing when you find out the next day it's worth $24 billion instead
8: it's a delicate balance and they are taking a look at what it's going to take to get to the next level to achieve that next phase of growth and they will need the people to get there and so absolutely for those longtime employees for even the employees of caper uh, as you recall they acquired a company for stock uh, earlier in october those employees will now only you know see a, a cut of about 40 percent less from where the purchase price was so there are going to be uh, winners and losers, but this is about the long-term play. And here, Instacart is saying we want to be a real player in this search for talent, and I think they're going to accomplish it. But you also have to think about what this means for for investors. They came in at a $39 billion valuation this time around. Last year, they poured in $265 million. Heavyweights like Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia, so there are. Going going to be uh, those that don't benefit from this type of move but overall the long-term play is they're going to have the talent to really take them to the next level all
3: right well our very own Brad Stone is going to be sitting down with Instacart CEO Fiji Simo at Shop Talk next week I'm sure this will be on the top of his agenda to talk to her about so we'll be looking for highlights from that conversation Jackie Davalos who covers Instacart for us thank you coming up NVIDIA eyeing a deal with one of the biggest rivals it has, and that is Intel. How the competitors could be looking to collaborate to end the chip crisis. That is next. This is Bloomberg.
7: After returning to making computer monitors, Apple should now go back to another market, home Wi-Fi routers. Five years ago, Apple's Mac business was a mess. The MacBook Pro had dropped key features, the Mac Pro was a disaster, and updates to the MacBook Air and Mac Mini were nowhere to be found. Apple had even stopped making routers and monitors. The story today could not be more different. Macs now have a fair blend of performance, battery life and aesthetics and Apple external monitors are back on sale. Next up should be those routers. Turn back the clock to 1999, and Apple was one of the first major proponents of Wi-Fi, launching an airport Base station accessory that let users plug in an Ethernet cable to give their entire home wireless internet. Over time, Apple launched several new variations, like the high-end Airport Extreme, a low-end Airport Express, and the Time Capsule for wirelessly backing up Mac data. But then, in 2018, Apple discontinued its routers without giving any real explanation, seeding the market to competitors like Arrow and others. Apple should now return to making privacy-focused, well-designed, and well-integrated routers for its own product hardware ecosystem. That router, of course, should be mesh, so it should include multiple pieces to expand wireless internet reliably across an entire home. Apple could even jam those routers into a HomePod mini taking a page out of Nest's book and creating a product that competes nicely with both the Google and Amazon ecosystems. I'm Mark Gurman. This is Power On.
3: You can subscribe to Mark's weekly Power On newsletter at Bloomberg.com. Now let's get an update on the world of chips with NVIDIA. One of the world's biggest chip makers said earlier this week it is considering tapping its main rival, Intel, to manufacture those chips. Let's get more on this with our very own Ian King, who of course covers the chip industry for us. Why would Nvidia, Ian, decide to use Intel as its foundry?
9: Yeah, I mean, it's important to put these remarks in context. Kind of typical piece of Jensen Wang, the CEO, kind of uh, talking really. He said, look, we're open to looking at any new suppliers. Having as many suppliers as we can possibly get makes sense. Intel, if you know, if they can get back to leading edge, if they can get back to, you know, the best production, best performance, then we'll definitely look at them.
3: So what's the next step here? What's going to get Intel over the line? Or and NVIDIA, yeah, I, mean, I should the, say, the, over the line.
9: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the other side of the Jensen Wang experiences he you know he makes positive complimentary remarks about Intel says this is the right thing for Intel to do and then says oh by the way yeah you know getting to be as good as TSMC is going to be really difficult they'll have to change their whole culture and he starts on this long list of comparisons unfavorable comparisons with TSMC and Samsung and says how good they are so the bottom line is he said it'll take a long time
3: now, yesterday, we slash you also broke some news about the Arm IPO and looking at a $60 billion valuation. This, of course, that deal that NVIDIA couldn't close, $60 billion seems high, doesn't it?
9: It does. I mean, if you compare it to what the semiconductor sort of average multiples would give you, it's $10, 20 billion dollars above what even the highest end would be. But if you look at it from the price of what the NVIDIA transaction had become, given the appreciation of NVIDIA shares, it's about on par with what NVIDIA would have ended up paying for ARM. And what we're being told is that this is really just trying to set a floor in people's minds about what really SoftBank thinks this company is worth, because there's As Masahoshi-san has said, this is a really pervasive company. This company is everywhere. It's way more than just another chip company.
3: And this Arm IPO is way more than just a traditional IPO, right? It's kind of complicated.
9: That's right. I mean, there's obviously a lot at stake. There's obviously one of the most important companies in the semiconductor industry, what will be the largest IPO in the sector by a long way. And at the same time, SoftBank, as we said in the story, is topping these tapping these banks and saying, oh, yes, if you want to underwrite this IPO, then you're going to have to basically loan us some money. You know, it's, it's attaching multiple billions of dollars of, of margin loans to the mandate, which, again, is, a, is an interesting way to do things and obviously has, you know, potentially positive consequences for SoftBank's liquidity.
3: All right. Ian King, thank you for those updates and all the news this week. Coming up why everyone seems to be searching for evs on google this month could the war on ukraine and rising gas prices be an inflection point for the world's transition to electric cars we'll have more on that next plus advice for startups in uncertain times as the war on ukraine and inflation rattle markets worldwide this is bloomberg Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. I want to talk about what's going viral now. As gas prices surged at the pump this month, swarms of people took to Google to search all things EV. Top of the pile of questions, how much does it cost to charge an electric car? Searches for that phrase were up 400% this month, according to Google Trends. Our ad Ludlow is here with why. And Ed, we've all felt that pain at the pump and it hurts. Could all this searching be the beginning of a big transition, a big momentum shift for EVs?
0: Yeah, it's what everyone's been talking about, right? Now is a good time to own an EV. You look at the relative cost of running a car on gas versus running it on electricity, and the gap has just got wider. In terms of cost of ownership, plugging in and charging has been more cost effective. So we've seen it, people take to Google, there's other third-party data out there through online auctions, for example, second-hand car websites. They're thinking, where can I get an EV as soon as possible?
3: Celebrities are also jumping in on the fun here. There was a tweet from Ice-T that got a lot of attention. Ice-T.
0: So he he makes this joke, right, that he's at the gas station and he's been robbed. He says, I've been robbed. And he has this kind of long diatribe through the tweet. Get to the end of the tweet and you realize he's talking literally, of course, about the price of gas. (laughs) Not that he's literally been physically robbed while filling up his car.
3: Right. Pump number nine, I believe, was the culprit. Um, I think it's got, it's got like a million likes. Um, then there was Elon Musk dancing in Europe. How do we know this has to do with gas prices and not people just enjoying Elon's dancing moves?
0: There's that tweet. This is the other point, right? That there are all these people that have decided because things are so bad at the gas pump, they're talking about it and they're venting on Twitter that they want an EV. And Elon Musk was dancing in Berlin because they're opening up a new factory, right? They're going to slowly ramp up production there. But the, the picture, look how happy he is. But the pictures speak to a much bigger point. There's all this potential in the world right now. The Austin plant in Texas, other EV <laughs> makers coming online. I know it's ridiculous, isn't it? But... The point is that those things are exciting. They're not here right now, and it's really hard to get hold of an electric vehicle. If you go on Tesla's website and try buy one that's being built in Fremont or in Europe, the wait times are so long. So, yeah, things are really tough right now at the gas pump. There's lots of excitement from Musk and Co about the future for EVs. But getting your hands on one, it's really difficult.
3: Does Elon have moves, Ed? What do you think?
0: Uh, I decline to answer that one. Emma. <laughs>
3: The pawing of the drone that was the best. All right, uh, thank you. <laughs> well, with the war on Ukraine still raging, along with inflation, investors and companies around the world are reassessing. How long will it last? What's the path forward? Let's talk about all this and more with Mercedes Bent of Lightspeed Ventures. Mercedes, how are you assessing what the impact this is what impact this is going to have? Obviously, we're seeing what's happening to public markets, but what about private markets?
10: Thanks so much for having me, Emily. And I would say for the private markets, we've been noticing that the later stage is being affected a lot. A lot of the crossover hedge funds had come into the market, and now their core is really diving down quite a bit. And so that's meant that people are being a much more wary of late stage rounds. When you look at the comparables, also for the late stage rounds, you know private companies might be raising at 10x or hundred X revenues multiples, but then you see that same company with a very similar business model and the public markets is trading at three to you know, six X. And so then you ask yourself, well, what's really the possibility for this company if it was to go public anytime soon, should I be paying this high of a multiple? So that's happening on the growth side, but then on the early stage side, we are seeing a lot of activity that doesn't seem entirely affected yet. So when I say early stage, I'm talking about seed, A the those rounds and that has still been kind of business as usual.
3: We just saw Instacart slash its valuation by forty percent from thirty nine to twenty four billion dollars. What do you make of that? And are we going to see more companies doing this?
10: I think we're going to continue to see more companies who are having to reassess what the the dollar val what the revenue is worth and think through whether or not the prospects for the next 12 months are the same. We certainly are thinking about it across our entire portfolio and being much more cautious about our kind of growth stage valuations.
3: Meantime, we were speaking earlier with the chief economist at City, talking about inflation. Andrew Hollenhorst, take a listen to what he had to say.
7: This is not 4% inflation. This is not 5% inflation. This is inflation that's around 8% and set to pick up closer to 9% in the next monthly reading on a year-on-year basis. Um, And so that's why there's been such a change in expectations for what the Fed will do. This is really a Fed now that is in inflation-fighting mode. And when you're in inflation-fighting mode, you need to get rates to a level that actually provides some restraint on the economy.
3: Mercedes, this is gonna impact companies on all fronts. How are you telling them to manage this?
10: We're certainly telling our companies at the early stage to, you know, think about how they're building their models in a much more sustainable way. You might be entering the bear market, you might be entering the period where capital is not going to be successful. And so they really need to have a plan for how they're going to support themselves with the funding they have and also rely on insider funding for the next 18 to 24 months. We also have a number of businesses that are affected from a supply chain perspective. And so we've been working with them over the last few really quarters and years Um, because this isn't just the most recent phenomenon, but it's been going on during all of COVID, we've been working with them on alternative supply chain routes and ensuring that you know they are even getting their demand forecasted further and further ahead so that they don't have to be as reactive to short-term supply chain fluctuations.
3: All right, Mercedes-Benz, Lightspeed Ventures partner, thank you for giving us your perspective on all of this. Coming up, volatility, also still the name of the game in crypto. We're going to talk about it all with Aya Kantorovich of Falcon X. Our crypto segment is next. This is Bloomberg. crypto report now as Ethereum is rising for another day, outperforming Bitcoin for a second week. Let's talk about it all
5: with our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Shanali, what's giving Ethereum a boost? It's really interesting to look at, but we should first look at Bitcoin here, Emily, because with a 15% rise in Bitcoin over two weeks, it is over $44,000. It's really over $44,400 here. Significant lift in the last couple of days. But to your point, you are right. It is not rising as fast as Ethereum has been rising over the last two-week period, where you see a more than 20% rise in the price over the two-week period. People seem to be getting very excited cited here about the merge, the move to proof of stake concept. But it will be interesting. Remember, Ethereum has a lower base to rise off of, so the percentage rises are easier to see over there. The market cap is still a very wide between the two cryptocurrencies. So let's see what investors prefer. Still a long way for Ethereum to go. Okay, Chanali. stay
3: with us. We're gonna be talking about this and more with our next guest, Aya Kantorovich, head of institutional coverage at Falcon X. Aya, what do you make of Ethereum's latest run? Does it have to do with the merge or something more? Absolutely, Shanali hit
11: the nail on the head. I think right now uh, we're seeing two things in the market. The first is uh, with the bullish activity around Bitcoin, possibly fueled by the news that Terra was planning on purchasing roughly three billion dollars worth of Bitcoin for their treasury, uh, and then seeing a lot of uh, a lot of hedge funds and retail investors uh, and aggregators taking profit share. Uh, off of Bitcoin and transferring that into ETH and altcoins, as Shanali mentioned, into that ETH 2.0 merge
5: and the excitement around that. Well, two questions are for you. What what more heat do you have behind ETH when you see some of the money already moving over? And what more room do more altcoins like Terra have to run here uh, with that excitement that other funds have behind it?
11: So a lot of it has to do with the growth of the applications that are being built on top of these Layer 1s. So whether it's Ethereum or you're seeing that price activity also happening on top of Layer 1s like Avalanche this week, and a lot of that interoperability happening with bridging Bitcoin into uh, these different Layer 1s and being able to use that store value asset as collateral for usage on those platforms, in addition just to uh, overall more... Uh, protocols and projects, uh, working on the uh, travel rule and tackling that in order to make DeFi more accessible. All of these are very exciting for the application of these layer ones.
3: Meantime, Aya, we're still seeing Bitcoin trade within this fairly narrow range. and It's been happening now going on two months. Why is that, given all of the activity?
11: A lot of it has to do with the fact that Bitcoin is now uh, adopted by institutions. And so we're seeing that volatility drop, which really means the mass adoption, both with what we're seeing across the desk in the conversations we're having with institutions across the board. And you're starting to see Bitcoin trade very similar to some of the assets in traditional finance. And so in general, there's more liquidity in the markets. uh, And you're seeing Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin being driven by institutions as opposed to crypto native volatility traders.
5: It's still gotten a good lift here over the last couple of weeks. It has really proven itself in some ways, but what is really going to give Bitcoin another leg here and make more institutions comfortable with the cryptocurrency? So, you know, there are a number of
11: institutions still going through due diligence with applying uh, Bitcoin, whether it's onto their balance sheet or into their investment thesis. So we still don't have 100 percent of institutions in crypto. And so we're starting to and continuing to see that trickle roll into the space as institutions are looking for a store value asset and also just for returns uh, across their portfolio in a market as today.
3: Meantime, Falcon X has some pretty big ambitions to get the next billion crypto users on board. Reports that you've earmarked $150 million for acquisitions globally. Talk to us about your expansion plans.
11: So we're really excited about the talent that we've brought on to our executive team, very excited about Susie Walters, Sujay Gelati, and John Kaplan coming to us from Bloomberg, Carta, Ripple, and Pinterest, and having that caliber of
5: talent joining us with a vision of a tokenized feature. You know, you mentioned before about this preference for some funds to get into Ether. I'm wondering, as you talk to all of these institutions, as you grow, how much is energy consumption a topic as you go along?
11: ESG is very much top of mind. And so to the earlier point that you mentioned, this transition from proof of work to proof of stake is going to be very, very important to the adoption uh, that institutions view for Ethereum
3: watching the the war on Ukraine as it plays out. Obviously, we've seen Bitcoin be used for humanitarian efforts. We've seen this executive order from President Biden. But there are also these remaining concerns about uh, Russians specifically using cryptocurrency for uh, illicit things to circumvent sanctions, for example. How does all of this continue to play out?
11: Specific to Ukraine, what we've seen in the effort to support Ukraine, whether it's within Ukraine itself, be it DAOs or NFT projects or more global uh, Ukrainian projects, uh, it's really just the validation that cryptocurrency is adopted and the interest is widespread. We're seeing that real-time value uh, in action across this currency system. Uh, and more broadly, you know, very um, in terms of how it looks for all of the players in the ecosystem. We're continuing business as usual with the continued kyc email, uh, that we have across the board, uh, which is also super important about the underlying blockchain and its ability to be traceable and trackable.
5: And there's this question going on also about you know whether Bitcoin can really replace traditional currencies, what function it has for, for example, Ukrainians who are using it to convert their money or to raise money via uh, NFTs or Ethereum or otherwise. When you're talking to institutions as well, do they see it becoming a replacement over some period of time?
11: That's a great question. I would say today institutions aren't viewing these major cryptocurrency assets as replacements, uh, more so as uh, something that goes alongside uh, more really where the focus is, is around stable coins and that widespread adoption uh, and the, the way it's being adopted uh, overall across all of the institutions using it today.
3: Aya Kantorovich, Falcon X, always great to have you here. Thank you. Along with Bloomberg's Shanali Basik. All right, coming up, the space race of the 21st century. Russia remains a key leader in numerous space technologies. But with the war on Ukraine, a new era may be taking flight. That is next. This is Bloomberg.
6: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot
1: of attention right now.
3: Ukraine isn't just changing the game in cyberspace, but outer space as well. Satellite companies that relied on Russia's Soyuz rocket to get to orbit are now looking for a new ride amid sanctions and Russia cutting off access. US launch providers like Northrop and ULA use Russian built ROD 180 engines. Now Russia's Roscosmos is facing competition, not just from the likes of SpaceX, but also startups focused on building rocket engines. One of those startups is Ursa Major, whose founder and CEO, Joe Laurienti, joins us now alongside our very own Ed Ludlow. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. So I'd love for you to set the stage here. What's happening in outer space since the war on Ukraine started? We're seeing some big shifts in the sort of center of gravity, if you will, for space technologies.
12: Yeah, you touched on two of the big headlines. Uh, There's the lack of launch uh, from Soyuz for Western players, uh, famously in the last couple of weeks. OneWeb, a UK-based company, has been forced to buy launches from a competitor in SpaceX uh, that has their own internet constellation. So that's one big piece of the story. And the second is the uh, embargo on Russian rocket engine in which Russia announced that they will no longer be selling here to the US. So I think the most common question I get on that piece of news is uh, the US was buying Russian rocket engines. I think that one always surprises folks.
0: Yeah, it is a bit of a surprise, isn't it, given the, the political tensions. And, you know, I think folks forget that before SpaceX, there wasn't a lot of option out there, right, Joe? So this must be pretty good news for you and your company. Right. Is your phone ringing quite a lot to ask about the readiness of your rocket engines? It is.
12: Yeah. the Obviously, the international piece of this has been extremely busy. Uh, the U.S. government has been extremely busy, and then the commercial side is extremely impacted here as well. Uh, SpaceX, obviously, is doing a tremendous job uh, filling filling their manifest with satellite operators. But the entire world has gone from a position of is the launch market oversaturated to uh, why is one web buying launches from a competitor? So I, I think that we're going to continue to stay really busy. And luckily it's just shining a light on the propulsion industrial base globally and how, how companies like URSA Major can come to help out both commercial entrants and uh, U.S. government.
3: So talk to us about that. How is URSA Major different from SpaceX or Blue Origin or what the Russians have to offer?
12: Well, we're different from the Russians in that we're entirely domestic. So we can provide uh, rocket engines here to the U.S. government and to U.S. players and Western players uh, as it suits them. But uh, as far as our business model and how we differentiate ourselves from a SpaceX or a Blue Origin, we're entirely propulsion-focused. So our engines are designed to meet a a wide range of needs from space launch uh, on orbit to hypersonic testing in the case of some of our customers. So there's a technological advantage there in which the engines are designed for a wide range of applications and uh, pretty diverse capability. But there's also an economic side of it in which we have a production line that we just got rolling this year. So uh, there are some economies of scale for, for us delivering the same type of engine to multiple customers or multiple applications.
0: Hey Joe, let's talk about that production line. I actually was listening to Elon Musk in Texas recently talk about how SpaceX is building one Raptor engine a day almost, but of course SpaceX doesn't sell their Raptor engines to anyone else. What kind of pace of production have you guys got and and how quickly and how do you build these things? 3D printing, right?
12: Yeah, one a day is a tremendous pace. So we just started production in January of this year and We hope to be delivering 30 engines to customers by the end of this year, but uh, the focus is really shifting us from a capacity perspective of how many engines per year to a rate, Uh, much like Elon said, an engine a day. We'd like to be at two engines a week uh, here in the not too distant future. So uh, the ramping there is really limited by uh, how quickly we can assemble the engines. You touched on the 3D printing piece. Almost every part of these engines that is a primary component or a metallic component is 3D printed. Uh, We then hand assemble them here in Colorado and test them about 100 yards from where they are assembled. So I'm sitting not too far from where we fire our rocket engines.
3: Joe, there's another part of this story, and that is hypersonic weapons. The U.S. has confirmed that Russia has used hypersonic weapons against Ukraine. But the U.S. is behind not just Russia, but also China in hypersonic weapons. And the government is calling on companies like you to help change this. Talk to us about why this is important.
12: Yeah, that's, that's the other side of the coin of the story here. Uh, we just saw a, we just saw Russia claim that they'd used the first hypersonic weapon in, in warfare. So the U.S. has been developing hypersonic capabilities for many years now, but what we've seen over the last couple of years is a resurgence of focus on flight testing hypersonics. So our engines are unique in that they are capable of being used on a number of applications, number of different vehicles, and they're capable of things like deep throttle or multiple restarts. So. We can simulate flight across a pretty wide range of missions, and that's really important for this next phase of development because the US will be forced to develop not just new hypersonic vehicles, but
0: new technology and new capabilities, and that flight testing is an enormous component. Hey, Joe, we only got a few seconds. How much money are you guys going to make this year?
12: It's hard to say yet. The year is definitely early, but we were excited to see uh, a pretty heavy focus from the DoD budget that was just recently approved on hypersonic testing and space flight. So um, some, some nice tailwinds for us.
3: All right. Fascinating stuff, what you're doing and what's happening out there in outer space. Ursa Major founder and CEO Joe Lorienti and Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. Thank you both. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Join us next week for a conversation. Our very own Brad Stone will be sitting down with Instacart CEO Fiji Simo at the Shop Talk conference in Las Vegas, along with DoorDash president Christopher Payne. Also next week, I'll be speaking with Uber CEO Dara Khazweshahi. We'll be joining you live from Shop Talk. Don't, Don't forget to tune in for a lot of interesting conversations. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone, and don't forget to check out our podcast. This is Bloomberg.
1: Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders